welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. In 2005, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz introduced a House resolution urging then-President George W. Bush to proclaim a month that would recognize the more than 350 years of Jewish contributions to American culture. The resolution passed unanimously, as did a similar one in the Senate, and the month of May was selected as Jewish American Heritage Month. Debbie Wasserman Schultz joins us now to discuss some of those contributions. Congresswoman, it's good to be with you again. Welcome back to People of the Pod. Thank you. I feel like it would be awkward to start our conversation without acknowledging what is unfolding in Israel as we speak and the debate about Israel that's unfolding in Congress. You gave a very moving speech on the House floor last week in which you said Israel has taken serious steps to de-escalate the conflict while Hamas has only escalated its attacks. So it's especially irresponsible to demonize Israel's conduct while ignoring her right to self-defense. Why is there such disagreement, and and what do you believe some of your colleagues do not understand about Israel? I honestly think this is an example of the necessity of educating our colleagues about the importance and history of the U.S.-Israel relationship, the importance of bringing members of Congress to Israel so that they learn more, not just about the origin of the Jewish state, but about the beacon of democracy that Israel is, the similarities between our two countries and Israel's identical priorities in terms of standing up for injustice, and then the basis of their laws being such that equal treatment under the law is a priority. Whereas when you're dealing with Hamas, you can't look at Hamas as anything other than a terrorist group. They are not a legitimate political organization. Yes, they have had people elected where they try to pretend to be both a legitimate political party and a terrorist organization. You can't be both. And so education, Manya, is really the key thing. We have to remember that Jews are less than 2% of the population nationwide. It's why Jewish American Heritage Month is so important, because Jewish American Heritage Month isn't about Israel. It's about making sure that more Americans are aware of Judaism, aware that we are both a religion and a rich heritage and and culture and our historic contributions in the United States. We have to educate those same Americans about how Israel became a country, the attacks she's been under for generations, that it is never, ever under any circumstances, no matter what the disagreement, to engage in terrorist acts as a resolution to a problem. It's also important here to underscore that Hamas, this is not about evictions. Hamas is doing the most basic of political brinksmanship. They are trying to get the upper hand over the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority is at a weak point. Hamas wants to gain political power. This is all about brute force and political power with the Palestinian people so that they can be the leading political group in spite of there being a terrorist organization among Palestinians. That's what this is all about. It's also important to educate our colleagues and Americans about the care that Israel takes. When they are going to defend themselves and need to go after Hamas centers of gravity, they leaflet entire buildings. They make sure that they send text messages. They count the people 
as they are coming out of a building, when they are going to target a known Hamas place where there are Hamas leaders that have gathered or organized, Hamas takes no such care. They just indiscriminately send rockets. They use their people and children as shields, and they have no regard for human life. You said this is a matter of education. Have those opportunities for education been lost or neglected? We have a number of new members in our caucus. We need time to be able to educate them and spend time with them. The pandemic has made that challenging. But it's also important to note that this is a relatively small group of members of Congress that are vocal about their views. Some of them have views that may not be changeable. But what's important to understand is that the overwhelming majority of Democrats in Congress, as well as the overwhelming majority of the Congress, stands strongly with Israel, does not agree with the smaller cadre of voices. And of course, you know, it's sexy and interesting when there's a loud group that is pushing against the tide that is normally heard. It's not that interesting to you know, hear that most members of Congress support Israel and are opposed to terror. You know, so the news covers the sexier, more interesting story in the louder voices. But that just means that we need to make sure that supporters of Israel come together more loudly (laughs) and speak up. Well, let's turn to Jewish American heritage. This month, our producers unearthed a number of recordings from AJC's Oral History Library and found an interview with Congresswoman Bella Abzug, otherwise known as Battling Bella, one of the founders of the National Women's Political Caucus. Let's listen to a clip. When I said this woman's place is in the house, I was trying to help society understand that the greatness of America is its diversity. And it's pluralism, and that there are many different things and many different currents, and that myths have to be dispelled. So I did that. The one slices in the house, one slice in the house, there's the house of representatives. When you got to the house, what were the problems that you had as well? Well, you see, there was a lot of uh, excitement about my coming to the house. It wasn't only that I won, it was that I also won by being very different than many other people perceived. Women had run before, and there were very fine women in the Congress. But essentially, they were... More like the men, maybe? In some ways, in some ways not. Because mm-hmm. women are usually insurgents to get into any place in high office. But essentially, they came of a different time, and they were not as willing as I was to do several things at once. To be a very serious legislator, as I was, a serious member of Congress, not learning the rules and knowing how to handle things. At the same time, maintaining the tie to the things I believed in on the outside. Having been an activist in the Zionist movement, the peace movement, and the feminist movement, the civil rights movement, the civil liberties movement, as a lawyer and so on, I maintained all of that activism, even though I worked very hard in the Congress and had a very fine record in terms of legislative production and so on. So I showed that you could be an activist and a legislator and a public official and speak out at the same time. I think that was a contribution. I think I showed that a woman could be as capable and as accomplishing as a man in the Congress. What she said about a woman's place is in the House. I love that. Congresswoman, can you speak to what it's like now to be a Congresswoman? I mean, what are the challenges you face because of your gender? Well, I've completed 16 years in Congress, and I'm now in my ninth term. And so definitely my experiences, having come to the Congress at 37 years old, I was pregnant during my campaign for Congress. I came to Congress with a one-year-old and twin five-year-olds. I was the first Jewish woman to represent Florida in Congress from my state. And there were a lot of women 
and many women like Congresswoman Absog came before me. But the opportunities that I had uh, to even conceive of running for office, I was actually elected to my state legislature at 26 years old, the youngest woman ever elected to the legislature back in 1992. And so my ability to even contemplate running as a young, newly married woman for the legislature and then a woman pregnant and running for Congress was literally the result of the trailblazing that women like Bella Abzug and her contemporaries did for me. Women like Bella Abzug and, and her contemporaries and, and then even the women before her, they could not have run with the profile that I had. It had been inconceivable. And so even what she was saying, where she says, you know, she was both experienced and accomplished legislator, able to be an experienced and accomplished legislator and an activist. And for me, I was able to run and win a congressional seat, be a mom of young children, and fully, full-throatedly represent my district at the same time. And then actually midway through my terms in Congress, chair the Democratic National Committee for six years. None of those things were conceivable in previous generations of women's service in Congress. Wow, one and five. You were really in the thick of it. <laughs> well, I also love that um, Congresswoman Abzug used the term insurgents. Women are insurgents <laughs> uh, in the House. Do you, even now in, in 2021, given all the progress that's been made, do you still feel a sense of that, a degree of that? I think not as much. It's so much more commonplace to have a woman serve in Congress now. We have, I think, 102 women, a record number of women serving in Congress now. And really the insurgency is that you don't have to be a certain type of woman with a certain type of profile in order to be elected. You know, you can be an older widow. You can be a young woman with young children. You can give birth, as several of my colleagues have while in Congress. And it's possible for a woman of any background or experience to run and win a congressional seat. And what's important is that when we're here, we are often the catalyst to change. We, we together collectively, as I know women did before, but because there's so many more of us, we have critical mass, we're 25% of the Congress now, you know, we can catapult an issue or push an issue that matters to women and families or would get to the top of the legislative agenda because of our service here that likely would not have if we were not here. Can you give some examples of legislation that, you know, in which progress has been made because of that representation in Congress? When I came to Congress with very young children, one of the first bills that I introduced and passed was the first federal swimming pool and spa safety legislation. I had passed legislation to deal with drowning prevention in swimming pools and spas. It's the number one killer of children under five years old through accidental death. And it had been a stubborn and very difficult problem that remains a problem today. But we were able to pass that legislation because I was able to garner support of other women and raise the awareness of other dads who had young kids. And, you know, I just don't think, you know, it wasn't that I was so special. It's just that having a young mom serving in Congress, I came to Congress with a different legislative agenda, a different set of legislative priorities, and the voice and the diversity that my being there added. There were less than 13 women in Congress at the time with children younger than 10 years old. 
So no wonder those issues weren't getting to the top of the agenda. So I'm not naming some big, huge priority. Certainly because of women, the Affordable Care Act certainly got through as a result of the number of women that served. But I use that as an example to show you that I'm just not sure that that would have made it through the narrow funnel, the narrow end of the funnel, without the service of someone with my experience. What about the significance of being a Jewish woman in Congress? What does that bring to the House floor? That's a good question. And it definitely brings a perspective. We did not have a lot of Jewish women serving when I first came. We have more now. But the first bill that I passed, Manya, as a member of Congress, was a bill that was brought to me by my Jewish community in South Florida to create a Jewish American Heritage Month nationally. There had been a Jewish American Heritage Week, but you know we were facing a precipitous rise of anti-Semitism and bigotry, which we are still dealing with today. And you know, like Black History Month and Hispanic Heritage Month, it was important to make sure that we had a month that helped raise the awareness in America of the important contributions that Jews have made throughout American history. Let's hear another clip from the interview with Congresswoman Abzug talking about how she was influenced by her upbringing in a Jewish immigrant household. When did you get the original thoughts to be a lawyer? When I was 11 years old. What inspired you, do you know? I said, I don't really know, except that, did you know any lawyers? I never knew a lawyer. I certainly didn't know a woman lawyer. I had no No. role model, as we say. I don't even think I knew any men who were lawyers. I think that in my home, as in the home of many immigrants, there's a fierce sense of social justice Mm -hmm. conveyed. People who came to this country trying to escape persecution, looking for new freedoms, thinking of working freedoms, economic freedoms, you know, a place where they could be Jews and so on without discrimination, or at least comparatively speaking. So you grow up with some ideas that come from your home, at least I did. And somehow in my mind, if I became a lawyer, I could set everything right. You are one of the founding chairs of the Congressional Caucus on Black-Jewish Relations. And in fact, you just tweeted this week about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and his role um, in the civil rights movement. And certainly we have so much to learn from his example today. What progress have you made? That caucus was launched two years ago. What progress do you feel that caucus has made and what more is there to be done? Well, you know, and going back to what Bella Abzug talked about in terms of social justice and the thread that runs through so many Jews from our families, generational experiences of persecution, whether they face persecution in their country of origin or even the anti-Semitism that some are experiencing today, Around my Jewish family dinner table, even though we were secular Jews, the importance of standing up for what we believed in, fighting for what was right, standing with people who are facing injustice, it was always stressed. It wasn't necessarily to me, you know, go out and march in the streets because my parents weren't activists, but they made it very clear that because we were fortunate, it was important that we give back to our community because we were Jewish and Jews had faced persecution and injustice, that it was important to always stand up against wrong. It was natural for us to create a Black Jewish caucus so that we could make sure we retied the binds between the Black community and the Jewish community amongst our leaders here in Congress so that we could continue that march towards justice together. And, you know, the pandemic in the last year definitely slowed down our progress because basically any activities like that were harder. But we have held virtual briefings on Zoom. 
we have come together both in support of and against the anti-Semitism that the Jewish community has experienced and brought together uh, Black and Jewish leaders to speak out against that virtually. And now we are planning our activities for the 117th Congress. The House and Senate have now passed the Jabara Hire No Hate Act, a bill the Black Jewish Caucus endorsed last year and this year. And AJC has long supported that bill as well. Why did it succeed this time? Unfortunately, what pushed it is that the anti-Asian hate has come to a head. You've had, I think, that the number in New York of hate crimes against Asians has hit like 3,500 incidents. There's been a huge increase across the country. And so I think it finally came to a head because across the country, members realized that this is something that we cannot allow to go on one more day, and we have to make sure that we can protect people no matter their background. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Take care. This week, Hamas continued its assault on Israel, firing thousands of rockets from Gaza at Israeli civilian centers. We wanted to, again, bring you the audio from a special AJC briefing. You'll hear my colleague Jillian Laskowitz in conversation with AJC CEO David Harris about the intense challenges of explaining Israel on the world stage and confronting widespread misinformation. To listen to the entire program, visit AJC.org or check the link in our show notes. Here you go. So welcome to our audience. There's a lot to cover today. We've seen a record number of rockets launched from Hamas-controlled Gaza into Israel. There's been a lot of misinformation out there to how this recent Hamas-triggered escalation began. Can you start by explaining how we got here, how we got to this recent violence and this recent Hamas-triggered flare-up? And... You know, do you see a way out of this as it stands? How do we get to this point, Jillian? Well, we have many starting points. I could begin in 1947. In 1947, as many of you know, the United Nations adopted Resolution 181, which proposed a two-state settlement to what had been British-administered Palestine. That was rejected. How did we get to this point, Jillian? Well, from 1948 until 1967, Gaza was not in Israel's hands. The world seems to want to forget that point. Let me say it again. Gaza was not in Israel's hands, nor was Eastern Jerusalem, nor was the West Bank. There could have been, if the Arab world wanted, a Palestinian state or states at any moment in time. Gaza was under Egyptian military rule. And I would invite anyone watching the show to go back and find even a single reference to an effort in the Arab world to give independence to Gaza or to create a Palestinian state. We could begin the story, Jillian, in 1967, when Israel, after Egyptian and Syrian leaders, publicly and repeatedly called for the extermination of the state of Israel, won the war in six days, and seized Gaza in the process. We could start this story in the months after, when Israel offered a land for peace formula to the Arab world to return those seized lands with only one exception, the Jewish holy sites in Jerusalem, but to return the lands in exchange for one word, peace. And the response from the Arab League meeting in Khartoum, Sudan on September the 1st, 1967, was the three no's, no peace, 
no negotiation, no recognition. Or, Jillian, we could start this story in 2005, when Israel, seeing no partner in Gaza, chose to exit unilaterally. And for those who were watching at the time, there were extraordinarily powerful scenes of Israeli soldiers forcibly removing Israeli settlers from Gaza, of removing the tombstones from Jewish cemeteries. Oh, and by the way, of leaving greenhouses that were built by the Israelis as a gesture of friendship to the people of Gaza and as a way of helping to kickstart the economy after Israel left. But what happened after 2005? Well, by 2007, the Palestinian Authority had been violently, violently ousted from Gaza. Hamas took full control. And for the last 14 years, Hamas has ruled Gaza. So how do we get to this point? We got to this point because Hamas is in charge and the Hamas covenant says as explicitly as day and night, the goal of Hamas, a Muslim Brotherhood jihadist terror organization, the goal of Hamas is to eliminate the state of Israel. So were there specific precipitating factors in 2021 as opposed to 2020 or 2019? Sure, we can point to them. But the real storyline and the storyline that too many people want to overlook, to neglect, is that at many points along the way, Gaza could have had its freedom, its independence, its statehood, and the pathway to prosperity. But when Hamas took over, the chances for turning Gaza into, say, Singapore were defeated by the pathway to becoming Somalia or Syria. Thank you, David. I think it's really important to go back and look at the history. There's been somewhat of a cognitive dissonance happening during this round, and it seems like history and historical context has just been thrown out the window. Um, I've heard you use the term reverse causality often applied to this conflict. Can you elaborate on that for our audience? Sure. Well, first of all, on the cognitive dissonance, just to underscore for the audience, the cognitive dissonance here is that there could have been a settlement. There could have been a peace deal. There could have been a two-state arrangement at several points along the historical continuum. And there wasn't. And each and every time, it came down to the same reason, that the Arab side chose either to reject the proposal on the table or not to come back with its own alternative and negotiate a final outcome with the Israelis. So the cognitive dissonance is to hear in 2021 and the occupation, where's the Palestinian state, as if none of this history ever happened because it's inconvenient history. I'm not here, Jillian, much as I'm a friend of Israel, to say that Israel has made no mistakes in its history, any more than I would say that the United States or any other democratic country has made no mistakes. But the fact of the matter is we could have had a deal. And it's in Israel's interest to have a deal. It's not in Israel's interest to have permanent conflict with groups like Hamas. Which brings us to reverse causality, another really relevant term in this conversation. Hamas triggers this conflict as it did the previous conflicts. They have fired nearly 4,000 missiles and rockets from Gaza indiscriminately across Israel. So having triggered the war, 
they're now calling attention to their own suffering as a consequence, can you imagine, of Israel's chutzpah in defending itself and trying to destroy the terrorist operations in Gaza. So the reverse causality means let's forget how this conflict began, Hamas firing rockets. Let's only look at the consequences of Israel trying to defend itself and show images in Gaza of buildings that have been damaged or destroyed or other scenes. Again, let me underline, in any war, any war, even the most just war, there are tragically innocents who are killed on both sides. And no one, no one in Israel that I know celebrates or takes joy in the loss of life of any innocent. But that cannot obscure the clarity of what's happening. Again, Hamas is designated not by AJC, but by the United States government under Bill Clinton, and since is designated by the 27-member European Union as a terrorist organization, terrorist, jihadist, Muslim Brotherhood, anti-Semitic, homophobic, misogynist. This is who Hamas is. This is who triggered the war. And yet too often we see this kind of moral fog as if people don't want to truly understand the nature of the two sides. And we at AJC have been spending day and night for the last 10 days, and by the way, for the last 10 years and 20 years, trying to sort of explain, clarify what's really going on here. And why are we doing this? Not just as talking points to defend Israel, though we do so proudly, but because if we're ever going to get to peace, people have to be clear-eyed and understand Hamas represents a dead end. It represents a roadblock to any prospect for peace, not just for Israel, but no less importantly for the Palestinian people. Absolutely. David, in our final minutes here, I'm going to slip in two questions for you. Um, so what have been some of the, the strongest government responses that you've seen this past week in support of Israel defending itself against Hamas? Were there any countries you'd like to applaud or, or any disappointments that you've seen? And then what are some of your final takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers with at this moment? If they share the outrage, what would you urge them to do? I want to begin with the United States. I want to begin specifically with President Joe Biden. And again, for everyone who knows American Jewish Committee, we are fiercely nonpartisan, and I am in my personal life as well. But President Biden has stood by Israel these last 10 days, and I have to assume it's not been easy for him. Not been easy for him because the left wing of his own party, this is no secret. I mean, we see it reported in the Washington Post. We see it on social media. The left wing of his own party is putting enormous pressure on him to back away. And he has stood by Israel's side for the last 10 days. And that needs to be shouted from the rooftops. Canada and Australia, as we've come to expect, have been very supportive. There are six countries in Latin America that have been strongly supportive. There are 10 European Union member countries that have been strongly supportive. I would particularly like to give a shout out in Europe to Austria, to the Czech Republic, who have really gone out of their way to kind of nationalize and publicize the support for Israel. And there are other countries as well there. So I can keep going with the countries that have been supportive. 
I would include countries that have um, a significant Muslim population, Albania, Bosnia, Kosovo. I would include some former Soviet countries like Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, lots and lots of countries. And apologies to those I haven't had the time to mention. And I would also want to note Greece. Yesterday, the Greek foreign minister became the first EU leader to travel to Israel to express solidarity and to confer with Israeli leaders. So Greece too deserves a special shout out. And last thing, Jillian, what can people do? First of all, don't overthink this issue. Israel is at war. And whether you like a particular prime minister or not, the fact of the matter is if you care about Israel and you care about people like Avital Leibovich and her family and the other members of our staff and others, this is not a time to sit, to cogitate, to debate. This is a time to stand up and be defined. This is a time to advocate. And all of us become more effective advocates, not when we stand alone, but when we stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, and we leverage our collective voice. The whole becomes more than the sum of its parts, Jillian. That's what American Jewish Committee, which has in so many ways led the public campaign here in the United States and around the world to explain Israel, to defend Israel, to advocate for Israel. Again, not as a perfect country, but as a country that was attacked, that has absorbed nearly 4,000 missiles and rockets, that has a right to live in peace and security, just as its neighbors do. But its neighbors will never do so as long as Hamas rules and as long as President Abbas now decides to go into competition with Hamas for incitement. Peace with Egypt, peace with Jordan, with the UAE, with Bahrain, with Morocco, with Sudan, proves that peace is possible and that Israel is desperate to achieve peace. Unite our voices, stand tall, stand proud, and be heard. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Doreen Rosenblum, Assistant Director for Government and Diplomatic Relations in AJC Jerusalem. Doreen, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So this is a complex question, since I will probably not be having a regular Shabbat table this Shabbat. Usually my family gathers, but this Shabbat and also last one, we decided it's not the best idea to get in our cars and hold a Shabbat dinner all together in case of a siren that can surprise us at any moment. Today's the 11th day since the escalation started. It started with Hamas shooting rockets at Jerusalem and continued with rockets at Tel Aviv, several to the north and mostly to the Gaza surrounding towns. For me, living in Tel Aviv, the situation is completely new and terrifying, I must say. In previous operations, it took Hamas a longer period of time to shoot at the center part of Israel. And when shooting, the amount of rockets was much less than this time. This time, we had about three sirens per day, mostly in the middle of the night, in which you take yourself, whoever lives with you, and run to the building's shelter and stay there for as long as needed. In the first night, it was 3 a.m., and we ran to the shelter 
and for 30 minutes, we heard explosions above our heads. Terrified, you go back to your bed, hoping to calm yourself and fall asleep before maybe another siren will come back. This is all we talk about every day, all day, and following the news and keep safe, hoping for this situation to end and that the bigger situation in which Hamas shoots at Israel and Israel retaliates will end permanently with bringing a new time for those living in the South, suffering from these rockets for many, many years. The Israeli people show resilience at each round of fighting. Those in the South share messages even today in which they prefer having the situation for several extra days and staying in shelter and safe spaces in order for Israel to hit Hamas severely in a way that the situation will not return and in a several months or years will go on another round. So on my reduced Shabbat table, this is what we will talk about. The frustration of experiencing this, seeing the southern part suffers once again and hoping for better days. Thank you so much, Doreen. I can't imagine how terrifying that would be to wake up to sirens at three in the morning. You and your family are in my thoughts. At our Shabbat table, we will be reading and talking about yet another one of my kids' favorite authors, Brad Meltzer. Brad writes the IM series of historical biographies for kids. He's also the brains behind the animated Xavier Riddle series on PBS. Brad appeared on a panel this week with our colleague Holly Huffnagel, AJC's U.S. Director of Combating Antisemitism. The panel was hosted by the Paley Center for Media, which used to be called the Museum of Television and Radio, and it was the first of quarterly conversations the center plans to hold on the media's role in explaining and curbing anti-Semitism. We'll put a link to the panel in our show notes. In fact, I have to watch it again. I had planned to take notes in hopes of learning what I could share with journalists and journalism students that might raise their awareness, but I was so riveted by everything the panelists had to say, I completely forgot. I just watched and listened, which perhaps is the best advice for journalists and students. Holly's wisdom and perspective did not surprise me. I always love the moment when she reveals she's not Jewish, hammering home the point that you don't have to be to care about anti-Semitism. It's up to all of us. Brad talked about why he has written the IM series, nearly two dozen picture books on inspirational figures like Amelia Earhart, Anne Frank, Martin Luther King, and Gandhi. He was tired of watching his children view reality TV stars as heroes, so he took matters into his own hands and began to tell the heroic stories his kids needed to hear. He applies the same rationale to the Xavier Riddle series on PBS, introducing children to Abraham Lincoln, the Wright brothers, Nellie Bly, and Golda Meir. Wait, what? That's right. 28 million children turned into Xavier Riddle this past year and learned about the life of the former Israeli prime minister. How cool is that? He compared the role of stories to the chestnut tree outside Anne Frank's attic window, which fell years ago. Its saplings have been planted the world over. Telling our children the stories of heroism and history that need to be told, he said, is like planting seeds of hope that blossom and grow strong. As we see Israel at war yet again, and multiple narratives of how that conflict began yet again, it reminds us that nothing is more powerful than telling our stories. It is the best way to fight back against myths and conspiracies and hatred. So, Doreen, thank you again for sharing your story. I hope there will be a ceasefire soon and your family can gather for Shabbat 
once again. Sefi? Well, I'm obviously thinking about Israel again this week, as I have been all week. But instead of spending these next few minutes focusing on the fighting, I want to call your attention to an upcoming election. No, 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 don't worry. There isn't another Knesset election coming up, and there won't be one until at least October or so. But in a week and a half, the Knesset will be voting to elect Israel's next president. In Israel, the president is the head of state, sort of like the Queen of England. After each Knesset election, the president invites the winner to form a government, the president signs every bill the Knesset passes, and he, yes, through the first 73 years, Israel has only elected male presidents, he has the power to issue pardons. More than anything else, however, the president is a kind of mascot. Previous Israeli presidents have represented Israel on the world stage, like Shimon Peres, whose status as a founder of the state, a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, and a former prime minister gave him unparalleled credibility and gravitas as an elder statesman. Israel's current president, Ruvain Rivlin, has done an admirable job in that respect as well, but where he's really shined is as a mascot of Israeliness within Israel. As president, the former Likud speaker of the Knesset reached out to Israel's Arab population and sought to bridge divides in society. Now, some may see that as a contradiction, that a right-winger would try to bring Arabs and Jews closer together. But from the earliest days of the Israeli right, from Jabotinsky through Begin, that side of the aisle was generally more invested in Israel's Arab population. Rivlin's father, as it happens, who was also a right-winger, famously translated the Quran into Hebrew, and Rivlin has lived up to that reputation, even starting out his presidency by going to the Israeli-Arab town of Kafr Qasim to formally apologize for a decades-old mistake that led to the deaths of dozens of residents. He has also worked to bridge gaps between the religious and secular in Israel and between Israelis and the diaspora. So who comes next? As of this week, there are officially two candidates. The Knesset will vote by secret ballot on June 2nd, and whoever gets the most votes will be Israel's next president. Unlike everything else about Israeli politics, this is going to be nice and simple. The candidates are Isaac Herzog and Miriam Peretz. Herzog is perhaps most famous as a former People of the Podcast. (laughs) No, 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 I'm, I'm only kidding. In addition to coming on our podcast... Herzog is the current chairman of the Jewish Agency for Israel, and before that, he led the Labour Party and was its candidate for prime minister. He also happens to be the son of Chaim Herzog, who served as Israel's president in the 80s and 90s. Miriam Peretz would be the first woman elected president. She became known in Israel when she lost two sons in battle in 1998 and then later in 2010. She went on to become a motivational speaker and was awarded the Israel Prize in 2018. Whoever wins, they will have big shoes to fill. We'll be sure to let you know what happens so you can talk about it at your Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag people of the pod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.